This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm Olivia Aguilar from ABA Publishing, and I'll be today's host. Our guest today is Jim Haggerty, author of In the Court of Public Opinion, Winning Strategies for Litigation Communications. Jim is president and CEO of PRCG Haggerty LLC and is an attorney, writer, software entrepreneur, and communications consultant with more than 25 years of experience in marketing, PR, and public affairs. With a broad background counseling corporate, nonprofit, and individual clients, Jim is frequently called upon as a trusted advisor in all manner of sensitive reputation management issues. His book, In the Court of Public Opinion, was called The Perfect Handbook for This Age by Financial Times. And in addition to Financial Times, the book was featured in publications including the Boston Herald, the New York Law Journal, American Lawyer, and the Washington Post. Today, Jim discusses what's new in the latest edition of this book and how public relations techniques can be used to enhance or derail the administration of justice. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah. So kind of to kick things off, um, you know, I wanted to discuss your background a little bit, if you could sure. share that with our listeners and uh, kind of talk about what inspired you to write this book. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a lawyer, as you said, um, mm-hmm. admitted in, in Florida and New York, actually, and but always had this background in media and public relations. And during the 90s, I would say, you know, that's the heyday of, of court TV and the O.J. Simpson trial and things of that nature. There became more and more of a need for the combination of those skills. And so I began working as a, a public relations consultant and more specifically in litigation communications uh, areas. Mm-hmm. And and that sort of went on for a number of years. And what was interesting is that there was no book about it. You know, as, as mm-hmm. a lawyer, you always find an ABA book or a, a practical guide to how, to how to handle certain areas of practice. Nothing existed in the litigation communications field for either lawyers or PR people. And so I guess I saw a need there and, and, and wrote uh, the first edition of In the Court of Public Opinion. And now, uh, many years later, I guess, suppose it's 17 years later, we're on the third edition. Yeah. And since you mentioned that you are also an attorney, do you find that you approach litigation, public relations differently than people that are working in that field? I, I think in, in two ways. One is uh, just a knowledge of the law in certain areas of law, and particularly uh, procedural areas, you know, Mm -hmm. what a motion to dismiss means. And I mean, one example would be that it's very, you know, the deck is often stacked against you on a motion to dismiss because if you're a defendant, because all of the elements asserted in the complaint are considered to be true. And so you very often lose. Mm -hmm. Now that can be, uh, you know, that's often covered in the media as a loss for the uh, defense. And, and, if the media doesn't understand how high the bar is for something like that, then uh, they're going to report it in the wrong way at that point in litigation. And then the other thing is I I deal with lawyers and I understand how lawyers think. And that's an enormous benefit because lawyers and particularly litigators are a curious group. And if you don't know how to work with them, sometimes it causes problems. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, it definitely seems beneficial to to have both of those skills in your line of work. 
So this is the third edition of the book. Could you share some of the new information? Because a lot, a lot has changed in litigation PR since, since you wrote the last edition. Yes. And, and what's interesting, I mean, the, there are two areas that where we, in essence, rewrote chapters. One of them has to do with um, privilege for public mm-hmm. relations activities during litigation. And the, the other one has to do with technology, which for the second edition of the book, I spent an awful lot of time, which was 2009, by the way. I spent an awful lot of time talking about MySpace mm-hmm. and things of that nature. And, and when I went back to rewrite, uh, you know, there, there was no Twitter at the time, or maybe it had just started. You know, uh, social media did not become every part of our life the way it is now. And, and, and really, if I recall correctly, the iPhone was about less than two years old when the second edition came out. So all of that has had an enormous impact on the way information is transmitted, including information about lawsuits. And would you say, with the growth of social media, would you say that Twitter has had the biggest impact on on litigation PR? Is there like a certain social media platform that has had an impact? I think that all have had their impact in a certain way. And I should emphasize that it's not just cases like the Harvey Weinstein case where communications becomes important in litigation. You know, it very often is the case that business disputes are covered by media that cover business or, you know, intellectual property disputes are covered by uh, media that, that cover intellectual property. And, and those, the way cases are perceived in, in media like that are as important to that particular piece of litigation as the New York Post is to a Harvey Weinstein case. And so really everything from websites to Twitter to Facebook, they all have had impact to various degrees, depending upon the type of case that you're facing. I mean, what's fascinating is that whenever we get an assignment in, even if it's a tax dispute, one of the first things my team does is, is see what's being said on social media and Twitter, because I can guarantee you there are tax professors and lawyers who are tweeting four times a day on various pieces of litigation and that's having an impact right, right. On, on the course and conduct of litigation. Yeah. So to start from the beginning of the book, um, you say that um, you should always ask two questions. What are the two questions that lawyers and their clients should routinely ask about all legal matters? Well, the first is, you know, you know will a case be subject to public scrutiny? Mm-hmm. And the second is, what do you do about it? What procedures can be put in place to manage that aspect of the case, because in its essence, litigation communications is a litigation management function. And it really should be managed from the outset with the same seriousness and care as any other aspect of the case. And so what happens very often is attention isn't turned to the public communications aspects of the case until after a reporter has called mm-hmm. or a blogger has posted about piece of litigation. And, you know, our argument throughout the book is that the time to plan for effective response is before the media is at your door or other key stakeholders. Yeah, I think you mentioned in the beginning of the book that you had well-known litigators calling you and and saying, what should we do when this blows up? But your response was, well, you should have planned for this already. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's the problem. I think that, that historically, I mean, even now, litigators who are leading cases, you know, they have been educated, you know, latest, maybe the 
early to mid nineties, let's say, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when there wasn't social media, when, when court TV was in its infancy, you know, when people still read newspapers and so they were trained and they were trained by older lawyers who learned before there was 24 hour cable news coverage. Mm -hmm. And there really isn't a, a real sense of the importance of doing this at the outset. And so you have a lawyer getting back to their desk uh, at the end of the day and, and seeing messages from media. And that only then do they start thinking about the impact, whether they're a plaintiff or a defendant. Mm-hmm. Right. So throughout the book, you kind of talk about how litigation communications is different from other kinds of um, what you call, quote, lather, rinse, repeat method yeah. of PR, which is um, basically just trying to get media coverage, but that yeah. this is far different. Could you kind of talk about the difference between the two? Yeah, and it, it's interesting because we face this a lot when lawyers come to us because they only have the most basic understanding of public relations. Mm-hmm. They'll come to us and say, uh, we need a press release on this. And so there's this lather, rinse, repeat method of PR where you put together a list of media, you write a press release, you send out the press release to media, and then repeat as necessary. Mm-hmm. And that's not really a thinking person's approach to affecting the public discourse during a piece of litigation. And so we try to avoid that, you know, like the plague, I guess would be the expression. And so you don't see a whole lot of the traditional press release when you're dealing with something as nuanced and complex as, as, as litigation. And also you talk about crisis communication techniques. Yes. Could you kind of talk about the differences between those as well? Yeah, and it's fascinating. Everyone knows the cyanide and the Tylenol type of crisis or, Mm -hmm. you know, your factory blows up and the most important events occur in the first 24 to 48 hours, you know, the first 72 hours, maybe. Litigation, as every lawyer and every company knows, drags out over months and sometimes years and the public attention to litigation ebbs and flows over that time. And so if you're taking a traditional crisis communications approach, get out as much information as quickly as you can to all audiences you can, and only focusing on those first couple of days, you're doing a disservice to the case. Now, there may be elements of a litigation that have that kind of crisis feel, right, where mm-hmm. everything's happening very quickly. But then what you'll find, is, and one of the interesting things you find is that then all of the attention dies off until the next legal filing. And when the next document is filed, no one knows where any of the public messages are anymore. And they go back searching their email to try to figure out what they said the last time this was in the news. And that tends to be a recipe for disaster. Right. Yeah. You've kind of touched on it so far, but, you know, the book is kind of about how litigators can turn a blind eye to the media aspects of litigation, why they don't see it as an important part of the case. Why do you think that is? Well, again, I think that they, you know, litigators are interesting because you see this in everything they do. They tend to be overly focused on what happens, you know, between the four walls of the courtroom. And anything that happens externally they're, they're far less interested in, and, and, and sometimes that does a disservice to the client, including the areas of uh, communications, because a general counsel at a company, for example, they need to see the whole playing field. You know, how is this mm-hmm. going to impact the, 
the company over the long run. And part of that is how is the public attention going to impact the company? We've been in situations where quite literally everything was going well in the courtroom, but the client company lost a half a billion dollars in market value based upon the public shellacking they were taking. And so the question becomes, you know, what is winning and what is losing in circumstances like that? Mm -hmm. So sometimes the big picture is very important. And, and at certain, you know, it's funny in the book, I, I have a very casual style. So I will gently pick on both litigators and public relations people throughout. And someone once told me that a good litigator is kind of like a, a really good auto mechanic. Uh, they know how to use the tools but don't ask them how the internal combustion engine works. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. You know, that sort of thing, yeah. Before we move on, we're going to take a quick commercial break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Hello, I'm Stephanie Francis Ward, the host of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered podcast. Starting in January, Asked and Answered will be making some changes to more deeply explore lawyers' experiences with unusual and sometimes challenging or even humorous situations practicing law. Our first episode with a new format launches January 27th, and it's about what it's like when your client shows up with a camera crew, ready to tell their stories on cable TV or Netflix. We have three episodes planned, so let us know what you think. If you like what you hear, we'll keep going. You can weigh in on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app, or by letting us know directly on Twitter at ABA Journal or my own handle at SFW70, Roman numeral 2. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. We're speaking with Jim Haggerty, author of In the Court of Public Opinion. So in litigation communications, you state that the first task when stepping into a high-profile legal dispute is to secure the points of contact. Uh, yes. Could you explain who the points of contact are and why is this such a critical step? Well, what's interesting is the public in the broadest sense they get their information from numerous different, let's say, inputs would be mm -hmm. the best way to describe it. And a lot of those come through a company. So one great example is the rumors and gossip that spread inside a company during litigation because no one knows exactly what is going on. If a company hasn't communicated internally so that employees feel comfortable with what's going on and with the company's position, what you'll find is that, you know, they all have Facebook too, and they all have Twitter, and, and they may know people in media. And so really those points of contacts need to be managed to the extent possible. And what happens is in, in a vacuum, that's when innuendo and, and guessing and gossip occurs. And so we encourage clients and their lawyers to reach out to the various stakeholders within a company so that they understand, they don't need to know everything, but so that they clearly understand the company's position and that, for example, if they should be approached by media, you know, please refer it to the appropriate representative that you've identified beforehand. 
Right. And so there's all sorts of, of points of contact within an organization. And in, in that way, it's, it's a little bit similar to a traditional crisis. If you run an industrial facility and your plant blows up and the media is coming through the front gate, you're not going to let them wander around aimlessly. You're going to set up a room where media can congregate and where you can get them the information they need to handle, to, to report on the crisis in an, in an accurate manner. Uh, in a litigation, you're doing that virtually uh, with both external and internal audiences. I would add that one interesting thing in that regard is the internet has given uh, both plaintiffs and defendants the ability to put documents related to the case in a public place where they can be found easily. Mm. And we've had great success with websites and other ways dedicated to litigation where reporters, the public, your own employees, everyone can go to see summaries of legal documents and the documents themselves and background materials so they better understand exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Is it harder to kind of monitor what the points of contact are who they're talking to on social media just because it's it's hard to to see what, you know, if someone is being directly messaged about something. Is is that hard to to kind yes. of yeah. I mean you I think it's the difference between managing the process and, and thinking that you have absolute control. Mm-hmm. And you know, back back in the day, as the saying goes, um, before the internet, before twenty four hour cable news I mean, corporations could, and this is another saying, they could bury it, then bury the shovel, right? Mm-hmm. And and really shut down on any communication and the story eventually would go away. That doesn't happen anymore. And I think that it, it's incredibly difficult, but you don't, you know, you don't forget to do it just because you don't have absolute control over it. Right. In the same way, you know, lawyers don't have absolute control over what a judge will do, but they try to exert as much control as possible over the litigation process. And so you basically you're doing the same thing with public communications through litigation PR. Interesting. Could you uh, share a few points from the litigation media checklist? There there are quite a few items. So if you just want to kind of touch upon a few. Yeah. I mean, what what we recommend is... You know, a lot of times to a lawyer, a case will seem just, if it deals with just the same old area of the law, it will seem like a same old case. And there's not any attention given to the fact that it may generate public interest. So we develop a litigation media checklist with all sorts of, of, which you basically run your case through. And some of the items are on it, you know, is, is the lawsuit out of the ordinary? Is it, is it, you know, man bites dog, you know, or is there a twist to it? Is there something uh, that takes the old law and, and, and really uh, applies it in a new way with interesting facts? I mean, one of the examples we give in the book, and, and I dare say I've been doing this for so long that I was involved in this, was sexual harassment via email. There was a time when that was, no one had ever heard of that. And in sitting down with the litigator, we discussed various cases, and the litigator tended to think of the importance of a case based upon what level of the court system it was and the, the novel legal issues involved. 
And then in an hour long meeting right before I left, he said, you know, there's some, there's an interesting other case. It's the same old sexual harassment law, but this time it's weird. It's by email. Mm. And I was, and my antenna went up and said, well, wait a minute, that's going to be the case you have to worry about. And sure enough, it was. And so that it's the same old facts of discrimination law, but applied in a new way. And then obviously if, if it's, what's interesting is if there are sensational facts to a case and, you know, I can remember cases involving the, you know, the most starched collar kind of insurance company, boring old insurance company that had, and an, I dare say, an, an S&M ring oh, operating wow. within the insurance company. Uh, that's pretty. That's pretty sensational facts, and, yeah. and those are the types of things, regardless of of the law or even how much money is involved that are going to catch the New York Post's attention, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it, what's interesting is I, I have family members who think because I'm in PR that I'm, you know, dealing with the, you know, the largest pizza pie ever made or the largest line of <laughs> tap dancers or something along those lines. And so, but the largest and the first often makes news. Mm-hmm. And so if there is a case coming down in antitrust or patent, and it has the potential to be the largest case ever. If people know about that, that's going to make news. Or the largest patent dispute, which, which is one of the cases we worked on ever, that's going to make news. And so f- from a plaintiff's side, you need to understand that when communicating about your case, you certainly want to mention that if you want news coverage of the case. And from a defense side, you have to be ready for the fact that this is going to attract more attention because it does deal with a case that may be the largest ever. So it's those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Yeah. And on that note, I will say that the book is filled with very in- intriguing case studies and um, personal stories as yes. well. So it's that's definitely a great part of the book. Um, I'd never heard some of the cases and some of them were very well known, but uh, yeah, it, yeah. I, I enjoyed that a lot. And I will say that it's not a typical legal treatise and that, that and, and, and in a way I, I kind of feel like I deal with difficult and serious things all day. The last thing that I do when I want to when I go home and write is want to write something that is a legal textbook. Right. Uh, right. So there's anecdotes. There's there's stories about uh, cases I've been involved in. There, you know, I occasionally throw my children in there. They make a good point. Things like that. Yeah, it's great. I'd like to discuss a point that you brought up in the afterward of the book. Sure. Your brother asked if you were worried if the work you do uh, skews the legal system in favor of those who know how to use the media to their advantage. And you said you don't believe that. Could you explain why and kind of tell us about that story a little? Well, it gives, uh, it gives the, and there's another family member that I included in the book, come to think of it, but it, it does give the advantage to the party that understands the media element of a case better. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it skews justice any more than any other extrajudicial factor has always skewed justice. I mean, the, the, the number one being money. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, and again, back in the day, you know, the party that could drive a truck up to your front lawn in response to a discovery request and drop a million documents on your front lawn before the age of e-discovery, they had a distinct advantage because they could bury some uh, the nasty stuff in those documents, you know, and, and, you know, so, so the, whoever had, I mean, basically if you look at a lot of our justice system, whoever had the most money 
tended to win. Mm-hmm. I think that what communications does is it gives, it levels the playing field to a certain extent and that it's no longer the case that you can bury it than bury the shovel in response or, you know, win by out financing a piece of litigation. I think that you can do that to an extent, but things are no longer hidden deep within the, the crevices of a court docket anymore. You know, and, and in the book, I give the example of uh, sitting at my breakfast table and I'm able to pull up every case filed in the Southern District of New York on Pacer for the prior day. Mm-hmm. And it took about 25 seconds. So if it's no longer easy to hide things in this age of transparency, and I think that if anything, that, that tends to level things. Yeah. And and I think also in the, this age of transparency, it's probably you get a better sense of the response from the public because if you're on social media, you're seeing how people are reacting and yeah. um, you have more access to it. You don't necessarily That's exactly right. Yeah, need and, to be you know monitoring newspapers or TV shows or anything like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that, you know, there's a downside to that and that there's, particularly in the corporate environment, there's a fire hose of information coming in through various social media and it can be difficult to understand it in the heat of the battle. But it's true. I mean, you can learn more about public sentiment and the way your case is being perceived now than you did in the days of of print newspapers, say. Mm -hmm. Now, that does lead to the, the issue that whoever has the best PR consultant wins. Right, um, right. But, uh, you know, again, that's always been the case with with uh, the legal profession. And the idea is that in the same way you put two talented teams of lawyers together in a courtroom and the truth emerges, so too it is hoped, I suppose, with the public aspects of lawsuits. Yeah, definitely. So also in, in the afterward uh, of the book, you say that litigation PR is here to stay. It's intermingling even more now with, with, like you said, social media and the 24-hour news cycle. And in that, the first uh, two editions of In the Court of Public Opinion were very well received in both legal and non-legal communities. And I'm assuming this one has been too and and will continue to be. Um, Yes. Why do you think this, yeah, why do you think this book is so important for both audiences, non-legal and legal audiences? Well, I'll tell you, when I first started on this effort, I gave a speech, I believe it was at the New York City Bar Association, and I I said that if lawyers aren't paying attention to the public aspects of cases the way they are every other aspect, one day it might be the case that an attorney is sued for malpractice for neglecting that area. And I was laughed out of the building. You know, they, they could not believe I would say such a thing. But really, it's become such a part of the litigation process that a lawyer who is not handling that aspect of litigation with the same seriousness as any other aspect is doing a real disservice to the client. And, and again, not just in the, you know, Harvey Weinstein type of cases. You know, it, it's if, if you're a, an electronics manufacturer, you know, electrical engineering times is as important to you as the New York Times. You know, and 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 if you're a company in in Tampa, Florida, you know, uh, Bay News Nine is as important as CNN. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so all sorts of cases. That doesn't mean you you have a press conference on the courthouse steps for every case that comes your way, 
but all sorts of cases need to be attended to with the same seriousness and care as, as uh, any other part of the case. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss today, Jim? No, I think this is great. And I, I mean, obviously, I love talking about this stuff, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. happy to come on whenever you'd like to speak about cases. Uh, I think that the book is, it, it's amazing. In the chapter on technology, I mentioned how by the time the book comes to print, you know, half the services will be on their way out. <laughs> right. Uh, in the same way MySpace disappeared shortly after mm-hmm. we published the second edition, the concepts remain the same. But I think that there's a real advantage to understanding the latest in technology and how things are uh, changing, which is why we wrote the third edition. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely uh, the technology aspect of it is great. And like we said earlier, it's filled with personal stories. It's it's a very interesting book. And um, I think anyone, even if you're interested in public relations or not, it's it's a great read. Great. Well, thank yeah. you. Um, where can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about your work? Well, they can go to our website, which is prcg.com, okay. and find information about our firm and the work we do and, and some of the uh, other uh, books I've written and everything they need to know. All right. Terrific. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Jim. Great. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You can purchase In the Court of Public Opinion at the ABA Web Store. Go to AmericanBard.org forward slash products. That's AmericanBard.org forward slash products. If you enjoyed this episode of the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.